Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Welcome to the next installment of our sermon series in the fullness of joy, which comes from John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And one of the essential elements of a full or abundant life is the presence of the fruit of the Spirit, which we read in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Probably have it about memorized by now, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so today we dive deep into the fourth fruit of the Spirit, which is patience. But before we do, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of this morning, for the beauty of your church, the beauty of your people gathering and declaring your worth, for the beauty of your word. God, we have so much to be thankful for this morning, and thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being near to us. And God, we ask that both of those things would be um, true right now, that you would be near, that you would speak, that we would have ears to hear. God, I ask for your help this morning in proclaiming your word. May it be accurate, may it be powerful, and may we leave here changed because we have come face to face with it. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our journey today into patience begins with an example of impatience and its tragic consequences. Back in Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 11, it's the story of Moses. And the children of Israel, it's near the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, where it came about that they ran out of water, which is a really big deal, right? No water means no life, and it's easy to understand how they could get very, very grumpy when they didn't have any water. And so they they complained bitterly to Moses, as was their habit. Imagine, again, after 40 years, all of the stuff that Moses has put up with with these people. They wanted to replace him. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And they said on this occasion, why did you ever make us leave Egypt? We would rather be dead than in this terrible place. And so Moses did what he always did when facing such a crisis with this people. He sought the Lord. I love that example. And in in the seeking, God told him what to do. And God said, gather the people together and speak to the rock, and it will pour out water. And so uh, Moses gathered everyone at the big rock outside the camp, but then something about that moment got the best of Moses be interesting to, to be able to get in his head and know exactly what happened at that time and even to have him here with us this morning and to, to share with us. It's like, oh, this is what happened. But what happened was he looked upon all the ungrateful, grumbling Israelites and maybe 40 years of accumulation of that just did. It was the straw that broke the camel's back and Moses lost it. 
It is described in Numbers 20, verse 10, where it says, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. Now, a couple things to notice about this example of impatience and its consequences. What was Moses instructed to do with the rock? Speak to the rock. Now, there was an earlier occasion where he was instructed to hit the rock, but on this occasion, he was instructed to speak to it, but that's not what he did. What did he do? He hit it twice. And then, who did Moses seem to credit for providing the water? The, the verbiage here is interesting. As Moses is speaking to the Israelites, he says, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring the water for you out of this rock. Moses credits himself and Aaron. And so we, we see here a man who was provoked. Provoked in the moment and responded with impatience. He explodes and we read God's response to it in verse 12. The consequence, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So here's Moses, this great hero of the faith, did so much right, but in this instance he was provoked, he became impatient, and he lost it. He exploded and then had to pay the price, a very steep one of not being permitted to enter the promised land. And we can each relate, can't we? We can all probably relate to his impatience of what it is when someone or something provokes us, and we respond like this guy right? Maybe you've been there this week. Something provoked you. You lost it. You exploded. We hit the rock twice. Maybe some of you are feeling that way today. Something or someone has provoked you, leaving you frustrated, angry, agitated, stressed, and discouraged. And so let's just get real for a moment this morning by asking the questions. Number one, what is it that lights your fuse? What is it that lights your fuse? And secondly, what is it that provokes you and tries your patience? You know, we're each different in here, and so there are probably different things that provoke us. But for many of us, it might be a scene like this. Right? Anybody get provoked by that? Traffic, gridlock, horns honking, birds flying. Some of you got that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> This is one of the things I do not miss about California, because that is a staple in California. But even here in northern Michigan, road rage is a real thing, right? You don't have to drive for long to see people driving crazy because of road rage. And I found some statistics that I found interesting. First of all, 78% of drivers report committing at least one aggressive driving behavior in the past year. I think that's probably low, um, including tailgating, yelling, or honking to show annoyance to another driver. Some of you did that on the way to church this morning, didn't you, right? <laughs> but sadly, it does lead to about 30 deaths and 1,800 injuries a year caused by road rage. How needless. 
And it's getting worse. Road rage is on the rise with a 500% increase in fatalities resulting from aggressive driving crashes between 2006 and 2015. 500% increase. Speaking of traffic, maybe some of you are provoked to impatience by... (laughs) Ye olde roundabout, right? Um, Either the driving on or the slow construction of, which isn't it interesting that on the Sunday that we're talking about patience, the roundabout is open, you know, for the, yes, thank you, yes. <laughs> Lots of applause for the open roundabout. Um, so maybe it's that that provokes you. Uh, here's one. How about... Oh, yes, some some provoking going on. I'm testing you. I'm testing you. Um, Also known for its gridlock, its corruption, certainly would light your fuse. And uh, as if that's not bad enough, then there's this image which might provoke you. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of patience... Um, it actually was the Lions logo. It was the Lions logo. And uh, yeah, so now that we're all worked up in all variety, um, it is natural. It is natural to respond with impatience when we are provoked. But now you probably know what I'm going to say next, don't you? As spirit filled new creations, we are called to respond supernaturally. Completely natural to respond with impatience when provoked. We are not natural people. We are supernatural people, filled with the Holy Spirit, not with impatience, but with patience, and patience that demonstrates to the watching world the power and the majesty of Almighty God living inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So today, we are going to study patience using that same grid that we've been using the past few weeks. We're going to look at patience defined, patience illustrated, patience commanded, and then patience practiced. And so let's look at the first of these, which is patience defined. The Greek word, which is here in Galatians 5.22, translated as patience, is makrothumia. Makrothumia. It's a compound word. It has two parts. The first part is macro, which means long or big. And the second part of the word is thumos, which means temper or anger. And so your King James Version, those of you who are looking at that this morning, it says long-suffering, long-suffering, which again, if you're a Lions fan, very applicable, right? Long-suffering. My definition, long-fused, long-fused, which explains the, the dynamite with the long fuse. The idea is that when you are provoked by a person or a circumstance, you are not quick to anger. You are not quick to explode. Rather, you are long-fused. You are long-tempered. Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, it's an ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. And this is especially true when the trouble is caused by people. Rather than exploding or lashing out, um, those who are characterized by macrothumia, they'll be full of grace, slow to anger, and quick to forgive. We have some wonderful examples in the scriptures 
of macrothumia. And so let's look at patients illustrated. The first and foremost of these examples of macrothumia, of patients in the Scriptures, is God the Father. God the Father. Listen to Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And then similarly in Psalm 86, 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so, we see this patience, this macrothumia of God demonstrated throughout the Old Testament time and time again when sinful humanity rebels against Him, spits in His face. He does not lash out in instantaneous rage. He does not explode, but He responds with grace and patience, with macrothumia. Consider God's patience at the time of the flood and the building of the ark. The ark. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's bad, isn't it? You think things are bad now? All right. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. What would you do if you were God in this circumstance where every intention of the thoughts of humanity was only evil continually? What would you do? Be done with it. Be done with it. God would have been perfectly within his rights to instantaneously wipe sinful humanity off the face of the earth, but he didn't. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days from that point forward until the flood shall be 120 years years. You talk about a long fuse. You talk about being slow to anger. A 120-year long fuse during which God gave sinful humanity the opportunity to repent and for a man named Noah to be obedient and to build an ark. Again, God could have just snapped his fingers and been done with sinful humanity, but he didn't. Why? Because he is patient. He is slow to anger. He has macrothumia. And then there was Sodom and Gomorrah. You're like, whoa, whoa, time out, Chad. Sodom and Gomorrah, how is that an example of God's patience? Didn't God utterly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And the answer, of course, is yes, he did. But not before Abraham played let's make a deal with God, right? Remember that story? You see, prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleaded with God. He interceded. He said, will you sweep away those who live right along with those who have done such wrong? If there are 50, 50 righteous people in the city, will you not spare it? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? To which our patient God granted Abraham's request. He said, yeah, I'll work with you. But then Abraham continues to plead down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10 until it was evident that there was no such opportunity for Sodom and Gomorrah to be saved. 
Yet God was slow to anger. He was patient throughout. Both the ark and Sodom and Gomorrah remind us of the truth in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, if you stop to consider just how patient God has been toward you, is toward you, will continue to be toward you, how much he loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you. For those of you who do not yet know him personally as Lord and Savior, how much he wants you to come and to be saved and to know just what it is to have a full and abundant life. So we clearly, on multiple levels, see macrothumia illustrated in God the Father. We also see it illustrated in God the Son. God the Son very graphically displayed at Gethsemane, at Gethsemane. As Judas, oh man, put put yourself in Jesus' sandals. Judas brings a contingent of soldiers and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, prompting Peter to draw his sword in defense of his Savior. But then Jesus says in verse 52 of Matthew 26, Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Talk about macrothumia, right? Jesus could have instantly called to have 12 legions of angels come and obliterate his enemies on the spot. But he didn't. And said, steady exercise that patience that we're talking about. Why? Because of his great love for you and his commitment to the will of the Father, which compelled him to surrender his rights and be nailed to a cross. And further, church, very fresh in our minds, let us not underestimate the patience that Jesus has exercised for the past 2,000 plus years, right? As he waits his return. He awaits his return. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And you know what? He's still waiting and waiting for the time of his return has not yet come. How, again, I'm, I'm, I'm humanly attributing to things to Jesus, which may be not, not mine to attribute to him, but how hard it would seem to be for him to wait like that. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he looks upon the earth and he sees all of the pain and suffering and violence and injustice, and he could put it all to an end in an instant. And yet he waits. It must be like a, a racehorse in the starting gate, right? Eager for that day to come, that, that day that we studied in the book of Revelation, when he will return and he will make everything right. But until then, macrothumia, patience, long-suffering. Why? Second Peter 3.15 sums it up like this. And count the patience of our Lord as what? 
salvation. You see, all the waiting, all the patience being exercised by the Father and the Son is for the purpose of allowing more and more people to be saved. But let us be reminded this morning that we are one day closer to his return, are we not? I don't know if it's right to say his patience will have reached its limit or it will have reached its end, but I will say there will come a day when he will return and he will judge. He will make everything right and his enemies will finally be completely obliterated, completely defeated, and it will be all important to know whose side are you on. And so we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we've had patience defined. We've had patience illustrated by the Father and the Son. Now patience commanded. Patience commanded. And in light of God's patience that we've just seen, it is no surprise that he expects us as his image bearers to also be known for macrothumia, for our patience. If people are going to see Jesus in us, and that's the goal, right? Then they must see patience in us. And so patience is commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where it just very simply says, be patient with everyone. About covers it, doesn't it? No qualifiers, no exceptions. Everyone, your friends and your enemies, those with whom it's easy to get along and those who provoke you, the good drivers and the bad drivers, the good days and the bad days, patience is commanded, reminding us that just as love, joy, and peace were volitional, meaning a matter of the will, so is patience. We must choose patience regardless of our circumstances or feelings. We must choose patience regardless of our circumstances or feelings. But as we said earlier, that's not natural, right? That's not the natural response. The only way that it is possible for us to make that choice, especially when intensely provoked, is through moment-by-moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Because impatience is natural, but patience is supernatural. Another important point about patience commanded is there is a direct correlation between our patience and our love. There is a direct correlation between our patience and our love. In fact, your patience is likely an accurate measuring stick of your love. They go together. If you are loving, then you are patient. If you are impatient, then you can say you love all you want, but you're not loving. How does 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter in that description of love, how does it begin? Love is patient. It's the first one. It's the very first one. Love is patient. First on the list of things that describe what love is like. No coincidence there. It is that important. And then Colossians 3.12, I think, fleshes this out for us when it says, put on Very graphic, very visual. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then it goes on to describe what that's like. It says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And what I appreciate about this passage is that that word picture of putting on patience like a garment. Um, When you got up this morning, your clothes didn't just magically appear on your body, did they? You had to be intentional about putting them on. And so it is with patience. It is a matter of the will. It is volitional. It is a choice that we make regardless of how we feel or what the circumstances may be because it is a command. Next, um, let's finish things up by looking at patience practiced with some practical ideas of how we can do this. And four very practical ways to position yourself to bear the fruit of patience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the first of these is worship your God. It all starts here. Worship your God. And especially as you worship your God, meditate on His character. Why does that matter so much for patience? Well, as we praise Him for His goodness... And we reflect and thank Him for the patience that He has so graciously demonstrated toward us. It is then hard to be impatient with others if we are truly in tune with how patient God has been toward us. Am I right? Far be it from us to be so eager to receive God's grace, to receive God's forgiveness, and then yet turn around and be stingy with others. It is hard to be impatient with others if we are truly in tune with how patient God has been toward us. So we are generous in patience toward others because of how generous in patience God has been toward us. But we must daily worship and meditate on His goodness to be reminded of this. So worship is essential to patience because it is also essential to abiding in Jesus the vine. So worship is essential because it reminds us of how much we've been given and how we are to be patient toward others, but it is also essential because it is essential to abiding in Jesus the vine. And patience, again, is a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is the vine. We are merely branches. We do not produce patience. We bear it as we abide. And so worship is essential. Number two, Surrender your entitlements. Surrender your entitlements. We get kind of grumpy, angry, bitter about people who come across as entitled, don't we? People who think they deserve certain things. But have you ever stopped to think just how entitled you are? Just how much you think you deserve in this life? And then what happens when you don't get what you think that you should have and what you think that you deserve? What's your response? We get grumpy. We get impatient. We become angry toward God and toward others. The note in my ESV study Bible, it says this. It says, patient shows that Christians are following God's plan and timetable rather than their own and that they have abandoned their own ideas about how the world should work. That word timetable stands out to me, and uh, there's an Old Testament example of an individual who did not surrender his timetable to God's timetable. Remember King Saul? 
when the Philistines were bearing down on him and the Israelite army. And um, the instructions were, wait for Samuel. Samuel's going to come. He's going to offer a sacrifice and kind of consecrate the army before this battle with the Philistines. But something happened with Samuel. Samuel was late. And as a consequence, here come the Philistines, and Saul's army is deserting him. And Saul decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. Never a good idea, right? We've all been there. We just said, oh, I'll just do it myself in my own time. And as a result, the army was defeated soundly, and Saul had a heavy price to pay for his impatience. One of the best ways to cultivate patience is to surrender your entitlements, your idea of how things should be, what you deserve, your timetable, your expectations, and instead come to the place where you truly understand what you really deserve. You thought about that this morning? What do you really deserve? You really deserve judgment. You really deserve God's wrath. And anything more than that that we receive, guess what? It's God's grace. It's God's gift to us. But yet again, we can fall into that trap of thinking, well, I deserve, I deserve, things should be a certain way. And again, let that be a check for us. If we think we deserve things that go beyond God's wrath and judgment, it probably is an indication we don't really understand the gift that we've been given in salvation. With that perspective, we'll become much more patient when we surrender our entitlements. Number three, love your neighbor. Always comes back to love, doesn't it? When you are loving, you will be patient because love is patient. When you are not loving, you're not patient. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says it like this. Apostle Paul, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those who are patient are not focused on self. They're focused on first and foremost God and then others. They bear with one another in love. And that, that word bear, it speaks of the fact that we'll be burdened. You bear burdens, the burdens of others. Others will provoke us. They will try our patience. But because we are loving, because we are forgiving, because we are gracious, we will bear with one another in love. William Law said it this way. He said, we may take for a certain rule that the more the divine nature and life of Jesus is manifest in us, and the higher our sense of righteousness and virtue, the more we shall pity and love those who are suffering from the blindness, disease, and death of sin. The sight of such people then, instead of raising in us a haughty contempt or holier-than-thou indignation, will rather fill us with such tenderness and compassion as when we see the miseries of a dread disease. When you're provoked... How do you see that person? A mark of spiritual maturity is to see them the way that Jesus sees them, through eyes of compassion, through eyes of love. Next, last one. We practice patience when we embrace our trials. 
when we embrace our trials, which is the opposite of what we would naturally do, right? We despise our trials. We want to run away from our trials. But James chapter 1, verse 2, you know it well. It says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness slash patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's the point. God uses trials in our lives that bring about patience, force us to exercise patience, which ultimately brings spiritual maturity. If you truly want to be spiritually mature, then trials must be viewed as opportunities for spiritual growth. We must embrace them rather than despise them. And here's where the rubber meets the road. You ever heard of people say, don't, don't pray for patience? Right? Don't pray for patience because God will probably do something that's going to cause you to have to exercise patience. And, and it, it, it's funny, but when you really examine what underlies that statement, what's it really saying? I'd rather be comfortable than holy. I'd I'd rather be safe than spiritually mature. I'd rather be in my bubble than really know Jesus. That's where it really gets down to the nitty gritty. Church, pray for patience. Pray for patience. Because if, if... If we come to that place where we say, well, I'm not going to pray for patience, you know what that says? You don't really trust God's character. And you don't really trust his word that says all things that he brings into our lives work together for good. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So how do we practice patience? Worship your God, reflecting on his great patience toward us. Surrender your rights or your entitlements, acknowledging that we don't deserve anything but wrath and judgment. Everything else is gracious gift from him, so we surrender to him and his perfect will and timetable in our lives. Number three, love your neighbor. And lastly, embrace your trials because it is more important for you to know Jesus personally than it is to be safe and comfortable. Let me close with this quote from a gentleman, a pastor named Michael Caputo. He says, Let us therefore ask God to fill us with this amazing gift more than ever before, and by so doing, we will reap the benefits of having more self-restraint in the face of provocation. We will be less willing to retaliate. We We will be less easily provoked to anger. We will be more merciful. We will be less liable to surrender to circumstances and less likely to crumble under trials. And finally, we will be less liable to get discouraged when things get tough, and we will be much more hopeful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to pause and worship you, the very first point of practical application, to worship you, to meditate upon, to remember your great patience toward us, your gift of mercy and grace toward us, how how fitting it is that we celebrated the Lord's Supper today and took that time to remember. But we have short memories. Our brains leak. 
And we will leave this place, and inevitably it won't take much for us to get provoked to impatience because we've already forgotten. So God, remind us. Remind us of how much we've already been given in Jesus, so much more than we deserve. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve. And may that realization be a spark within us that drives us to patience as you are patient. God, I pray for those who are here this morning and they've been profoundly hurt somewhere, someone, something. There is something of great hurt in their hearts and lives right this very minute. And as I speak about patience, it's difficult. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you set them free? God, where there are hearts full of bitterness this morning, would you set them free from that bondage? Would you wash over them afresh and anew? And God, may we excel as a congregation at bearing with one another, loving one another, being patient with one another. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.